Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Christ is risen. Christos Anesti. No, no, okay. I, I just thought I'd throw it out there. Alithos Anesti. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For 2,000 years, Christians have been using that greeting on Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This morning, we celebrate a bare historical fact. We don't celebrate the ideology or symbolic higher truth or some legend. We celebrate the fact that Jesus, who was God, walked on earth as a man, died and was resurrected on the day that we celebrate today. We don't celebrate the idea of forgiveness uh, that is better understood through the metaphor of a story with a man like Jesus forgiving Peter for his denial. This is not a symbolic application of truth. This is fact. Fact. Jesus was raised from the dead. I feel like Dwight Schrute. Fact. (laughs) He actually lived. Now, you can dismiss an idea, but you can't dismiss a fact. You may not like it, but you can't deny it. And this morning is not my responsibility. I don't want to take the time to actually go through the empirical evidence of the resurrection. I would love to talk to you if you have questions about that. Um, But this morning, I do want to speak about what the fact of the resurrected Christ means to us. The road to Emmaus actually happened. The resurrection actually happened. There was a man called Cleopas. There was a person called Luke. These are facts. And, and what we tend to deny is either deny the fact or, like me, I know that this is a fact that chocolate is bad for me and is going to make me fat. I have a choice as to whether I allow that fact to affect my behavior uh, today. So just because something is a fact doesn't mean we've wrapped our minds around what that fact actually means with regards to the way in we, uh, which we live our lives. I'm going to be reading out of Luke 24, and a large portion of Scripture, it will be on the screens for you. Luke 24, 13 to 32, that very day, two of them, now what had happened is some woman had gone to the tomb uh, to see Jesus and to prepare his body, and they'd seen that he wasn't there and that had a vision of angels. And now these two men are walking away from Jerusalem, and this is where the story picks up. They were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? It's kind of sly, I think, you know. And they stood still. As they're walking, they stood still. And looking sad, one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? And he said to them, What things? Hmm. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some of our women, some of the women in our company have amazed us. They came to the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table, again, remember, tables and sinners. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. I know, right? I know. I know. I'm still trying to deal with the fact that a man was raised from the dead. So this is, you know. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem from wherever they went. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered. And the eleven say, back to these two that have come, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. About 20 years ago, I walked into the American consulate in Johannesburg. And uh, we were there for our visa interview. And uh, I'd been really well prepped for a visa interview, and the lawyer had said to me, so probably what's, what's going to happen is you're going to have the initial kind of fact check, and then they're going to take you into an office in the back, um, and then they're going to ask you these questions. And these are the questions that they're going to ask you, and this is exactly how you need to answer them. He says, make sure you look like a pastor, make sure you talk like a pastor. He said, make sure, literally, these were his words, make sure your wife is dreamt, addressed frumpy, you know what I mean? So just like play, play the role. So we, we walk into the consulate and we're sitting there and we get called to the counter. And so I give the man, you know, my ID. I give the man Corin's ID. He takes my ID and he looks at the ID and he looks at me and the smile starts to come across his face. He looks at the ID and he looks at me. And then I say to him, that's a sweet mullet, isn't it? You know, I had... The craziest, curliest mullet on my ID when I was 16. A bushy front, you know, you know, totally like business in the front and then party in the back, you know? So yes, I have photographic proof of this. And so he says to me, as I say to him, that's a sweet melody. What's that? No, no. <laughs> Just because I have it doesn't mean you're gonna see it. You know? Okay. So he says to me, hey, bro, we've all been there. And he told me he was from Wisconsin, that most of Wisconsin had mullets, and I didn't know that that was true at that stage. And so we, we started talking, and we're just hanging around, and we're chatting, and he asks us a bunch of questions. And, um, and then I think, oh, this first part of the interview is going real well. Um, and then he starts to ask some more serious questions. And I'm just joking around, and I'm answering these questions with him, and we're just talking, and Karen is looking a little nervous, and... And then he brings out like his stamps, and then I realize this is the interview. There is no second part to the interview. This is the guy who is going to determine our future. 
I recognized that when he brought his stamp up and started asking questions, kind of a power move, you know what I mean? He's got his stamp like this, and he's asking me these questions that the lawyer has warned me about. And now, I know it's different in the sense of what the disciples at Emmaus have noticed, but I did not recognize who this man was. I did not recognize the power he had. I did not recognize the fact that in one moment, my life could be changed in the sense that I would receive my visa to be here 20 years ago, or I would be denied. And there were many people denied that day, crying at the counter because they were denied. The thing is, imagine walking with Jesus and not recognizing him. Imagine having a conversation with him and not knowing who that is. Now, I think that's easier than we think it is. I think it's easier than we think it is because often our view of Jesus is obscured by unmet expectations and negative experiences. And that's what these two men had experienced, unmet expectations. They had an expectation of who Jesus was and what he was supposed to do and specifically in the way that he was going to do it. Now, it didn't matter that consistently... Jesus told them why he was here. Consistently, he told them that he would have to suffer and die and in three days be raised. And he was telling them all of this information. And yet somehow, the resurrection seemed to give them more questions than answers in terms of this. So Jesus had to go through the law and the prophets, through Moses, and to show them that this was the promised king. Now, even though they expected a human king, they know that Israel needed a king. But what they didn't realize is that this king would have to suffer and die as a rebel. He had to suffer and die as a rebel because they themselves were rebels. Jesus' whole life was disruptive. From the announcement of his birth, to his actual birth, to his words, to his life, to his friends, to his disciples, to his death, and obviously, his resurrection. Here is a man three days before breaking bread with the disciples, sipping the wine, instituting a new covenant at the Last Supper, and the next act is going to be his death. The same man is now breaking bread with these disciples as the risen king. Wow, what a disruption. What is a disruption? A disruption is a situation in which it's difficult for life to continue in the normal way. And those of you that are married will know that when you were first married, you, you, you had a very clear decision to make when you left the house. Do we want to leave the house? We want to leave the house. Let's leave the house. And you left the house, right? Then you had children, right? The blessings of the Lord came to your home. And then you had a myriad of decisions to make. Do we want to leave the house? I don't know, do we? <laughs> because if we need to leave the house, then it's stroller and car seat and bag. And do we have enough snacks? And where are we going? And how is nap time? And your life is disrupted. And it's disrupted in a positive way, but your life is disrupted. It's not going to be the same. In business, disruption is a significant change to an industry due to innovation. If I told you 10 years ago uh, that you would get off a plane at an airport, get into a stranger's car, and go to a stranger's house and stay there, you would say to me, you are out of your mind. What are you talking about? In 2007, two bright guys decided in San Francisco they were going to put an air mattress uh, on a, in an apartment in San Francisco, and they were going to offer breakfast, which was cereal, 
and Airbnb was born in 2007. In 2008, after spending 300 bucks on a town car, one of the founders of Uber decided they're going to disrupt the way we do all of these things. Disruptions are not always negative, but they often are difficult to understand when they're initially initiated. Just like there were hotels and cabs, um, when Uber and Airbnb disrupted the industry, there was an existing way of communing with Yahweh. Now, the existing way of communing with God was very specific. It was based on your nationality. You had to be Jewish. It was based on your proximity and access to the temple. It was based on specific sacrifices being offered at specific times. And it was also based on whether you had done your job and kept yourself ritually clean from all the various ways that you were considered unclean by the religious leaders. And even that access was an access that was given through a high priest. So there was a way in which people gained access to God, but what Jesus did was disrupted all of that. Jesus disrupted who had access, he disrupted where they had access, and he disrupted how we were to gain access to God. Who had access? As I said, only the Jews. Why? Because they were God's chosen nation. There was a sense in which the Jews had received the covenants and promise of God, the law. And not only did you have to be Jewish, you had to be a good Jew to be able to have access to the temple. Only the righteous made it. And those of you that have been on the journey of Luke will understand that Jesus is constantly breaking that mold. The outsiders, the sinners, the outcasts, the unworthy are consistently being invited by Jesus, but they are the men and women that don't have access to the temple. The Abrahamic covenant, when it was instituted with what was considered to be the father of the Jewish race, Abraham, said that God instituted this covenant so that the Jews would be a signpost and a blessing so that all nations would know the glory of God and be able to have access to Him. But that never happened. Now, all people from all nations have access to the beauty and power of God. Paul is talking to a church that is mainly a Gentile church, non-Jewish church, and he says this to them in Ephesians 2 verse 19. So you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people. So this is what, what Jesus has done, is created a new people. And you belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Remember to two weeks ago, what Jesus was talking about with the temple and the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him, and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord, Christ is building you into a temple where God lives through the Spirit. Which leads us to the second thing that Jesus was disrupting is where can we have access to God? So in those days, you had to be in the holy city. It wasn't just enough to be in the holy city, you had to be in the temple. It wasn't just enough to be in the temple, you had to be in the holy of holies. And the holy of holies in the temple was separated by a veil. And that veil was torn in two on the night that Jesus was crucified, which showed us that God was not bound in the holy of holies, but was a God for all space and for all time. Jesus said that I will destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What was he talking about? Not a physical temple. He was talking about his own body. He was going to become the cornerstone on which he was going to build a new temple, a new space 
where God's Spirit dwelled, a new area where God would be glorified and where people could come to meet Him. Jesus' resurrection meant that location was no longer relevant. The old temple was destroyed, and in 70 AD, the old temple was destroyed, and, and not another sacrifice was ever offered in that temple. He is now the cornerstone of that temple, and every single Christ follower has become what Peter calls a living stone of that temple. Look at our gym. It's not exactly a sacred space, is it? We keep it as dark as possible so that the flaws are not clearly obvious. But this is a sacred space. It's a sacred space because of you. It's a sacred space because each Christ follower carries within the Spirit of God. It's a sacred space because there are people that have come to faith in this room. It's a sacred space because marriages have been restored here. It's a sacred space because forgiveness has been offered, because bodies have been healed. This is the sacred space. And the cool thing about the sacred space is this sacred space disperses into the weak and multiplies itself as the temple of the living God. That is how disruptive the resurrection was. Jesus disrupted what we have to do in order to gain access to God. There, there were the intricacies of the sacrificial system, the law, the bang of the law, the ritual cleansings, and entrance was barred to people that were not able to fulfill them or didn't fulfill them. Now, these things were not irrelevant. It's not like these things suddenly became irrelevant. Like Karen shared this morning, Jesus fulfilled every one of these sacrifices. Jesus became the Passover lamb. It's not a coincidence that the Last Supper took place at the Passover because Jesus was saying, I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. My blood will be shed. And those that are under the blood of Jesus Christ, just like those in Egypt that were under the blood that was put on the doorposts, are going to be saved. There was a day called the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and what he would do is he would, he would sacrifice a lamb, and he would take some of that blood, and he would sprinkle it um, on the altar. Only one priest in the Holy of Holies could do that. The problem was he had to first atone and cover for his own sin, and then he had to atone and cover for the sin of the entire nation, and this had to happen every single year. And this was disrupted by the resurrection of Jesus. Because the writer of Hebrews says, once for all, Jesus became that sacrifice. Not only did he become our sacrifice, not only is he our cornerstone, but he is our sympathetic high priest. And it's important for us to recognize that, that sin is something that prevents us from having relationship with God. It isn't something that makes it more difficult or annoying. This is not like getting in someone's car and they're playing music you don't like. I remember getting in a car with a friend of mine and he said, hey, I want to play you something. And he played me, I'm going to offend some people here. He, he played me country music, okay? <laughs> Bear in mind, I'd, I'd been here maybe a year or so and he'd play me country music and I started to laugh. I thought this was a joke, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like yeah, you're right, this is funny, you know? <laughs> and he looks at me and he's like, well, why are you laughing? I'm like, why are you asking? You know? <laughs> He's like, this song is so meaningful to me because of all of this, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's a great song, you know? <laughs> I, like, I repented for lying later on. He knows now, you know? 
Sin is not like that. Sin is not the sense of irritation where, you know, God, God wants to be with us, but, you know, he's annoyed by this fact that we are broken human beings. Sin prevents us from having a relationship with the Holy God. And the good news is that God is the one that dealt with that obstacle. That only because Jesus was God was he the one that was able to pay the penalty so that we could be with him. John 6 verse 29 changes everything for us. What do we need to do to come close to God? Jesus replied, this is what God requires of us, that you believe in him who sent him. This is what God requires, that you believe in him who God sent. Now the point of what Jesus did is not just a legal declaration of innocence. It's not just some kind of forensic act that needed to take place. Yes, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our advocate, that, that part of what happened was the price that needed to be paid for our guilt was paid by Jesus. But legal justification, which is what Jesus did on the cross, the paying of a price for our sin was not the point. The point was so that we could have relationship with him. Justification, as precious and important and powerful as it is, is the means to the end. What is the end? The end is being with Jesus. The end is being with our risen King. The end is a relationship with someone that is alive today. God doesn't have clients. He has children. So the idea that there is something legally wrong in the universe. Yes, it's true, and God deals with that, but the reason that he deals with that is because he wants to call his children home, and he has to deal with that. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called innocent, that we should be called free, that we should be called cleansed. Yeah, all of those things are true. See what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children. Of God, for that is what we are. Jesus has disrupted who has access to God. He's disrupted where you can have access to God, even what it is that you need to do to have access to God. Now, why is the resurrection the hinge point of history? Well, it's the hinge point of history because it's the proof of Jesus' claims. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'm pretty sure the disciples tried to believe this. Now we know, spoiler alert for next week, some of them are looking at the resurrected Jesus, eating with him, and it's one of the coolest scriptures. That's why I love the scriptures. It says, and some still doubted. I am the resurrection and the life. Let me say this. Many people were crucified. Many people have sacrificed their lives for others. That's not the uniqueness of what happened here with Jesus. There were other prophets. There were other priests, kings, and teachers that said all of these things. We don't need a temple. The sacrificial system is too burdensome. It's, it's too exclusive. It doesn't change the heart of a person. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah said that. The difference is Jeremiah's dead, even though he said that. The earth-shattering disruption is that all of what Jesus taught and modeled on earth is validated by the resurrection. There's only one person that ever, that ever said, I'm going to die and I will be raised again. 
And everything that he taught was validated by that. And because Jesus was God, the penalty, the final sacrifice, was paid by the one that was owed it and was raised by the only one that had power over death. Paul tells another Gentile church that has come to faith, not through the ritualistic system of Jewish understanding, but through a simple belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for their sins, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, and he says this to them. Because there were questions. Is the resurrection a real thing? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless or futile. We jump to verse 17. If Christ hasn't been raised then your faith is worthless, useless, pointless, and ineffective. Part of the reason I'm saying that is to show you that Paul repeated himself. So I'm repeating myself. It's a biblical thing. If I really want to be a biblical teacher, I have to repeat myself. Paul is repeating himself. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sin. And what's more, those that have died in Christ are gone forever. Bless you. If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. Do you understand what first century life was like? There were a lot of people that were worth pity. But Paul says to the Corinthian church, if we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first crop of the harvest of those who've died. What Paul is saying is the hinge point of everything that has been taught is this. We do not follow an idea, an ideology, a new system. We follow a risen king who wants relationship with us through the Holy Spirit. And if resurrection has not occurred for him, then it hasn't occurred for us, then all of this is meaningless and futile. Resurrection is the hinge point of his history because it is proof of Jesus' claims and it transforms the way in which we view our life and our death. John 10 verse 10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly or to the full. Now, Jürgen Moltmann says this, Resurrection is not a consoling opium soothing us with the promise of a better world in the hereafter. It is the energy for a rebirth for this life. The hope doesn't point to another world. It is focused on the redemption of this one. So yes, we rejoice this morning because we know that anyone that walks with Jesus will never taste death. They will taste everlasting life after death. But we rejoice even more because our lives here, these 80, 90 years, whatever you have, are given in the service of the kingdom of God. They are meaningful and purposeful. And that's also why the resurrection is so powerful. The resurrection obliterates these postures that I should fear death. Now, I don't fear death. I fear how I'm going to die. I don't want to die in a wood chipper. But, you know... I. Right? I mean, okay, maybe a little too much. Any Fargo fans out there? I'm just, yeah, okay, so enough said. Look, 
and this is, this is an honest reality, I do not fear death. I don't. I don't have to. Because death is a step into glory for me. I don't fear death. I do fear this, that my life would not have been as meaningful for the kingdom while I've been here. So resurrection obliterates that posture. Death is not to be feared. It obliterates this other reality that sin, my sin, it cannot be dealt with, and I can only manage it or ignore it. The resurrection is proof that my sin has been paid for, the penalty has been paid for, and most importantly, the resurrection proves that I can have power over sin. Not only do I need to deal with the reality of what it means to have someone paying the price for my wrongdoings, but I have power in the Spirit. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, what? Lives in me. I have the ability to say no. Titus says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. I have the power to be able to resist. The resurrection obliterates the reality that my suffering is meaningless and that I have to carry my own pain. Because Jesus suffered and carried our pain on the cross and was resurrected in power. The resurrection makes our past circumstances redeemable. Now, this is hard for some of us to understand, but your past as a perpetrator and your past as a victim is redeemable. Now, this is the most amazing thing because all of us in some way are both perpetrator and victim. Now, there are some in this room that have been deeply victimized, but the reality is this. No one here is just a pure victim. And no one here is just a pure perpetrator, but this is what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. Whatever you have done as perpetrator and whatever you has been done to you as victim is covered by the blood of Jesus. And in the resurrection of Jesus, the power of that is broken. A resurrection makes our current situation tolerable. It makes our future hope. We, we, we look to the future in terms of stepping into eternity with expectation, peace, and joy. The resurrection is hope for the proud rebel, for the hollow robot, and for the shameful victim. Hope for the proud rebel. You shake your fist at God. I don't need you. I'm handling my life. The hollow robot who doesn't even really understand what is happening is just doing life, not even thinking about spiritual things. And the person that has been hurt and victimized, is there hope? There is. Why? Because he is risen. Truly he is risen. Band, you can come up. So do you recognize Jesus this morning? Maybe like the two men in Emmaus, you are questioning, you're confused, Maybe you've known Jesus. Maybe you were in the inner circle. It seems like these two men, even though maybe they weren't part of the kind of tight group of disciples, had walked with Jesus for some time. Maybe you're on some kind of journey like they were, a journey based on unmet expectations, a journey based on disappointment and pain, a journey based on negative experiences you've had within the context of the church, unmet expectations you've had of God. Maybe Jesus is walking alongside you this morning saying, what's happened? 
Are you able to see him? Or maybe you believe that the pain and disappointment and confusion that you're carrying is just something that will be your walking companion and not Jesus. Maybe like me at the visa counter, you've never met him. You have no idea what he looks like. He's some kind of ideal. He's a a list of do's and don'ts. He's some kind of political caricature. Maybe you don't even recognize him as Jesus the victor, Jesus the lamb, the sacrifice, Jesus your friend. Maybe you're on a journey to find truth, just truth in its broadest sense. Maybe you're just quite happy right now. But what would happen if Jesus came alongside you and said, what's been going on? Would you recognize him? Would you want to? Maybe this morning, Jesus is saying that right now to you. There's a woman I have deep respect for. Her name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. That's an awesome name. What an awesome name. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse. Um, She was an avid atheist. She came to faith in 1999. This is a quote from one of her many books. She said, my conversion left my former friends and family thinking I was loony to the core. She's also British, okay? My conversion left my former friends and family thinking I was loony to the core. How could I leave a worldview that was open, welcoming, and inclusive for one that believes in original sin, that values the law of God, that seeks conversion into a born-again constitution, that believes in the truthful ontology of God's word as found in the Bible, that basically means that I believe that the Bible is valid for making my decisions every day and comes from God, that claims the exclusivity of Christ for salvation and purports the redemptive quality of suffering. So what is she saying? She's saying that that a lot of her friends couldn't understand the fact that she was being drawn into, in their words, something that was so counter her, her whole teaching and her whole life. She says, only one reason, because Jesus is a real and risen Lord and because he claimed me for himself. Paul puts this in a much, much simpler way in Romans 10 verse 9, where he says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. This is how deeply Jesus disrupted everything we know about God and religion. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? You believe that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that with your heart, then you make that confession with your mouth. You will be saved. It is that simple. And so the eternal kingdom of God can break into your life in a moment now where death has no sting, but also where your life is so disrupted that you become light in a dark place, that you become hope in a place of despair, that you become peace in a place of agitation, and that you fill the world with 
love instead of hate. Today, the Spirit of God can open your eyes to see who Jesus is. He's our sacrifice. He's our victor. He is our friend, and he is alive. And today, you can say that as a deep reality for your own life. Today, you can say, the Lord, my Lord, has risen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you pursued us, that you came to dwell in the dirt, that you came to dwell in a, in a womb, that you came to suffer and die for us, but we are so grateful that today we celebrate your resurrected life. And we are so grateful that you disrupted all the hurdles that were placed before us. And all we need to do is simply see you, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, who was raised from the dead, and confess that with our mouth, and we have peace with you. God, be with us as we continue to worship you, as we continue to model what today is about. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.